you've got your scriptures, I'd like you to turn over to Zephaniah. I know you've been reading that a lot this week. So uh, in case, you don't, again, you don't know where that's at, go to the book of Matthew, go four books back into the Old Testament, and you're going to land on this minor prophet whose name is Zephaniah, and we're going to get into that in just a, a little bit. <clears throat> About four years ago, I had a really interesting day. I had the Sunday off at Sherwood Oaks, and I had something planned on a that afternoon. So I decided to, to go to a church I'd never been to before here in Bloomington, and I went to a Quaker church. Now, I don't know if you've ever attended a Quaker service, but in a Quaker service, when you gather, the focus is on listening and not talking. And that is not like the churches that I've grown up in my whole life. Uh, they didn't have any music, and so there was a, this room, and it got very quiet. And then they sit, and they allow God's Spirit to move through the solitude and nobody talks until they feel God leading you to share what life lesson you're learning. So I sat there, and nobody spoke for 15 minutes. So we're going to do that right now. So everybody bow your head. Now, you, if you're like me, after about five minutes, it was unnerving. And I shouldn't have been looking at my watch, but I'm like, I have never sat in a church this long that nobody spoke. Finally, somebody spoke, and they said, I'd like to share a lesson that God had taught me. And they shared, and then another five or seven minutes went in silence. Somebody else shared. That went on for about an hour. They prayed, and I left. And I remember thinking, wow, that was powerful. Got in my car with my son Caleb. We headed to St. Louis. Met my nephew and some of his friends. And then we gradually made our way to Bush Stadium. Not to see a Cardinal game. It was the 360 tour with Bono and U2, Okay. So somewhere around 11 o'clock, uh, I know I embarrassed my son because he disappeared. I think it's because I was singing at the top of my lungs, street with no name. I'm woo! Isn't that awesome, Caleb? Caleb, where are you? You know, so anyway, and when I laid my head on the pillow, I thought, this was a really interesting day. I mean, I really experienced an extreme emotional swing. Now, let me ask you something. This year, how many of you had at least one day that you'd say was an extreme day? Raise your hand. Where you laid your head on the pillow and you thought, when I look over the last 24 hours, I can't believe what just happened. Now, I want you to think about these minor prophets, and I want you to think about this. We're not talking about an extreme day. We're not even talking about an extreme week. We're talking about a season in the life of Israel that could have gone on for decades, and it really was extreme. I mean, there was these extreme lows, but we're going to see in Zephaniah, some scholars say of all the prophets, this has the greatest swing from low to this amazing rush high. Don just read to you at the end this amazing high of an entire nation being called to celebrate and what that looked like. But to get to that point, we're going to get to the lows that they all went through. So first of all, you need to know a little about this guy named Zephaniah. He came out of a royal family. He came from the line of Hezekiah. So in his lineage are these kings. Hezekiah was a wicked king. Matter of fact, you may remember, he's the individual who begged God to allow him to live another 10 or 15 years. Do you remember that story? And God let him live longer. And you know what he realized? I should have just gone when God wanted me to go the first time. But through that lineage comes this amazing prophet named Zephaniah who wrote around 622 B.C. Now here's what I love. This is a great parallel study. Along with Zechariah, who was prophesying all the things that were going wrong in Israel, there was a young king. His father was assassinated, 
and that king's name was Amon. And the young man who took over, anybody remember his name? Josiah. At eight years old. Can you imagine an eight-year-old being the king of a nation? But what's amazing was the wisdom of this young man. As he grew in age, he realized through, I think, the prophecy of Zephaniah and others, Israel's just not right with God. And he did two amazing things as a young king. Matter of fact, by the age of 17, here's what he did. First of all, he said, as I go through the temple that's been destroyed, I found some sacred writings. And we're going to get back to those sacred writings. Second of all, we're going to eliminate all these idols. We know we shouldn't be worshiping idols. So as a king, we're going to wipe that out. Now, that didn't happen in a year or two years. But over his reign, that's exactly what happened. I'll tell you what it reminded me of is my brother. I have an older brother named Ed. And uh, I learned more about baseball from my brother Ed than any other human being. And I remember him going out in the backyard with me. And he'd walk me through all the basics of hitting. And he would, even as a really young guy, he would say, now here's the deal, John, about hitting. You will go through slumps. It's not if, it's when. And when you go through these slumps, everybody's going to teach you something. Everybody's got a a different bat you need to use. Everybody's going to teach you a new stance. Don't listen to them. I'm your brother. You listen to me. I said, okay. Now, here's the only thing you need to remember. When you go through a slump, always, always, and you've heard this too, go back what? To the basics. It isn't that you don't know enough. You know what to do. You need to go back to the basics and do what you know to do. How many times in your life, in your relationship with God, is that the lesson you've learned? You stray from God, you wander from God, and you want to read another book, you want to have another study, and then it clicks. Wait a minute. I don't need more information. I've got the information. I just need to get back to the basics. And that's exactly what this king was teaching. It's exactly what Zephaniah is teaching. Matter of fact, he has a threefold strategy that we're going to share this morning. And each strategy point is a chapter of Zephaniah. So don't get nervous. I know what you're thinking. Anytime a preacher says three points, chapters, you're thinking, great. We're, never going to be, we're not going to beat the Baptist to lunch today. But we are going to do that, okay? So here we go. Chapter one, here's the first part of the strategy. Assess the situation. I have a slide here. I want you to see what's going on in Judah. These are their shortcomings. So Zephaniah assesses the situation. He said, I want you to know, here's where you're completely falling short from God's grace. Here it is. Number one, idolatry. And you can just almost hear Zephaniah's voice. Did you remember the Ten Commandments? Did you remember that one of the most basic instructions... Do not give way to idolatry, and here they are again, giving in to idolatry, verses 4 through 6. Then he says, you have alliances with foreign powers. That's never going to work. God has a plan. You do what God has asked you to do. Don't allow the foreign alliances to creep in, because eventually you're going to be worshiping what they worship. Be very careful of that. Then he talks about violence and injustice. He looks out and he said, listen, there's a lot of violence and there's a lot of injustice. That is not God's will. And then in verses 10 through 12, he talks about deism. Now, deism is something we can understand today. And here's what it is. In the belief of deism, they don't care if you believe that there's a creator. In deism, they will give you that. That belief system is we believe that there's probably a creator because we can't explain the amazing things that are going on in creation. But here's the other point but we believe that God is not engaged in your daily affairs. In other words, he doesn't care. 
He created this world, and he just walked away. Do you see the danger of that belief? Now, let me ask you something. He wrote that 600 years before Jesus. Do you think that we practice that in our country today? Now, think about that. We really do. There are people who will say, matter of fact, statistics have proved out probably 90% of the people, if you ask them, do you believe in God? Yes. Do you believe God is actively involved in your daily life and that he cares? The stats go way down. There's a lot of people like, I don't think he cares what I go through every day. Think of the disconnect and the danger of believing that. And then I love how he wraps up chapter 1. He says, here's a huge problem. You are trusting in things that do not save you. You think if you had a fortified city, that's going to save you. You think if you have silver and gold, it's going to save you. And you don't realize that isn't going to draw you close to God. You need to cling to God and realize there is something that's going to save you, and it's not a human effort. It's God's effort reaching out to you. Here's the truth of chapter 1 is he has this judgment to Judah, and this is a brutal truth, and I wish it wasn't this way. When he deals with tough times that people go through, it usually gets worse before it gets better. Can I have an amen for that one? Even if you're not a churchgoer, I want you to think back over your life and think of the difficult times when it got worse before it got better. Think of the times that you talked to a doctor, and basically what the doctor shared with you is there's going to be a healing process, but it's going to get worse before it gets better. Think of busted relationships you've had that you've had to restore, realizing that once you dealt with the truth, it got worse before it got better. Raise your hand if you've ever heard this phrase, it gets darkest before the dawn. How many of you ever heard that? And I'm going to tell you, I believe that that's true. And these are dark times for Judah. And then it gets a little darker. He said, now let me broaden the horizon. I'm not just talking to Judah now. Zephaniah says, I'm talking to the world. And here's what he says in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Gather together, O shameful nation, before the appointed time arrives, and that day sweeps like chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord comes on you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes on you. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. You do not want what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility, and perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. If you were to go through chapter 2, he mentions these nations. Philistia, Moab, Ammon, Ethiopia, Assyria. And when he talks about Philistia, he's talking about the west. When he talks about Moab and Ammon, he's talking about the east. Ethiopia is south. Assyria is north. He's calling out the entire world. And he said, if you don't get right and if you don't repent, there's a judgment coming. And here's what's interesting as you go through chapter 2. Do you know what really upsets God? Look at verses 8 through 10. You know what really upsets him? He said, I want you to know, and he's calling out the world, what you're doing to my people has not gone unnoticed. Has Judah been disobedient? Absolutely. Have they made some really bad decisions? You bet. But here's the bottom line. They're my people. And if you mess with my people, you're messing with me. Don't mess with God. You know what I love about God's word today? I still feel the same way. When we see persecution all over the world, you've got to know something about God. God's wrath is still real, and you just don't mess with God's people. I truly believe that. So here's the question I have. 
if Israel realized how deeply God loved them, that he was actually calling out an entire world to get right with him, why would they walk away? What was it in their personality that I think is a personality trait that all of us have that's a dangerous trait? And I've asked Claudia to come up this morning and to share with us. As we were talking about some life lessons, I wanted to hear something from her heart. Well, I, I was uh, telling John about a time several years ago that I was just uh, all stirred up, is a good way to put it. I had a lot of decisions to make, and I was confused and lots of anxiety and um, just didn't know what to do. And my husband, he said, honey, I have a surprise for you. I'm going to take you away, and we're going to take a look at, at the decisions you have to make and see if we can get some calmness. And I said, oh, that sounds great. Well, I found myself at Land of the Lakes in Kentucky, 2007, uh, 2070 beautiful acres of protected land, to sitting in a, a probably assembly about like this, listening to a naturalist about to give a presentation on how eagles build their nest. Now, that wasn't what I thought Ken was going to have in store for me, and I wasn't thrilled about it. But he showed this picture um, of an eagle's nest, and I was blown away when he told me that eagles build a nest eight and a half feet in diameter, 12 feet deep, and can weigh up to two tons. Immediately got my interest. And he had a big table on this presentation, and he said, would you like to see what an eagle puts in his nest? I said, Sure. And he said, in the bottom of it, and he had on the table Coke cans and big pieces of glass and some flip-flops, even a man's shoe in the bottom of the nest. The next layer was sticks and big pieces of rock and um, kind of tin cans that he'd found on the second layer. Then on the top layer of the nest was a very soft cradle of green grass and hay and then on the very, very edge, the mom had even picked out her own feathers and lined the nest so it was down and soft and protected from the rain. Well, the little babies start to grow up, and mom takes good care of them. He, the naturalist told us that the, the mom feeds all the little babies in the nest systematically so that they all get the same amount of food. And they wondered if they mixed the little babies up, if she could still know which baby she fed. So they did. They rearranged all the eagles, and still, without missing a beat, every single baby got the same amount of food. She takes very good care of those babies. And they grow, and they love their nest, and they hunker down, and they're warm and comfortable. And then one day, mom realizes these little babies are called to soar and to fly. And she's got to help them do that because they're so warm and comfortable, they don't want to grow up. So mom begins to pluck out the soft lining of the nest and throw it on the ground. And then the babies are still hunkering down. I'm sure they're saying, Mom, what are you doing? <laughs> ouch, ouch. And then she gets in the nest with her big body, and she begins to stir it, and those big feet of hers gets all that rough stuff up in the bottom of the nest and brings it to the top. And the babies are, oh, ouch, each. And they get right where the mom wants them to be, on the edge of the nest. And she gently pushes them, waiting in case they fall to gently swoop under with her big eight-foot wings 
and catch them because she wants those eagles to be everything they can be. Well, the next morning, I was reading in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32, and the words burned in my heart, as often God speaks to me this way, when he said, in a desert land, I found you, and I shielded you and protected you and cared for you as the apple of my eye, as an eagle stirs up her nest and hovers over its young. I realized that the stirring up in my life, the confusion I was feeling, the hard place I was in, was going to work to the good, that God had a plan far beyond what I could believe. So there may be someone here this morning, in fact, I'm probably sure there is, in that same place I was in, feeling confused, feeling all stirred up, feeling a bit anxious, wondering what's ahead, and Deuteronomy reminds us that God is the God of the universe, the God who is and who was and is to come, has a plan. And he's going to be there to guide us and protect us and shield us. And I love the way Zephaniah puts it in chapter 3, that the Lord as God is with us. He is mighty to save. He will cover us with his love and rejoice over us with singing. So that was my stirred-up story uh, that John asked me to, to share. And I don't think I've ever felt the same about an eagle again. If you go all the way back to chapter 1, here's what happens. It says, At that time I will search Jerusalem with a lamp, and I will punish those who are complacent. When you look at Israel's story, it's our story. And here's the story. We go along, we know what's right, and we get kind of bored. And we kind of do things our way, and we slowly start drifting away from God, and we get complacent. And then we eventually reach points in our life where we wake up and say, how did I ever get here? And why am I doing something I never dreamed I would be doing? And how does that happen? It doesn't happen like that. It's such a slow thing. And it's out of that complacency that you can end up in a terrible place. And that's why I believe just when Claudia and I were talking about this, I love that point. Can't you just picture that eagle saying, oh, you're comfortable. Well, let's just slowly start placing things in your life so that you're not comfortable and you don't get complacent. So can I take one minute and brag on you and tell you how proud I am of everybody that's here today? Because you know what you did? On May 3rd, you stepped out of complacency to do something, really, that is not an easy thing to do. Because I want to tell you something about Sherwood Oaks. And I've been a part of Sherwood Oaks, hard to believe this now, for over 20 years. Let me tell you about Sherwood Oaks. It's easy to get complacent. Because it's an amazing place. And I'll tell you, I, can, I remember how wounded I was when I first came back 10 years ago to Sherwood Oaks. Started out in the balcony. A lot of folks start out in the balcony. And I'm like, man, this is pretty good. This is, this is actually pretty comfortable. I, I like it here. The pews are nice, and you got three services. You can, there's options, and you can do this, you can do that. And if you're not careful, you can get really, really complacent. I still remember walking somebody through the church one day who'd been coming to Sherwood Oaks for 10 years and didn't know we had a kid's department downstairs. And you know why? Because they were complacent. I come in. I sat down, and let's be honest, in the same pews we always sat every Sunday, you know, and all of a sudden there's this crazy idea. What if we started something on the west side? 
You know what it did? There was a group of people, and you're that group, that said, I'm very complacent right now, but I just need to be pushed out of the nest. And so I just want to say thank you, because it takes guts to do that. But we got to keep pushing each other. We got to keep pushing each other because we know nothing good comes out of complacency. I want you to think back when you were a kid over the long summer breaks, which are getting shorter and shorter. How many of you got in trouble when you were bored? Am I the only one? Whenever I would utter the words, I'm bored, my mom knew that is not a good situation. Okay? So we'll find something for you to do. Now, we don't ever want to be bored. And how can you be bored in Jesus Christ anyway? Here's the problem they were facing. The bottom line was they didn't want to change, and he called them to repent. Let me share with you something that uh, breaks my heart, but I see this happen a lot spiritually. Dr. Uh, Dr. Edward Miller, who was at John Hopkins University, did an extensive survey, and here's what they surveyed. They took individuals who were going through bypass surgery, and a part of the bypass, and this is serious surgery, part of the bypass surgery is we're going to provide this surgery, and you can get better after the surgery, but there's two things you need to work on. Anybody know what those two things are? Diet, and what's the other curse word? Exercise. Okay, so you got this is only short term. We're going to do everything we can, and now here's what they did. Two years later, they went through everybody that went through this bypass surgery to find out if they changed their eating habits, and they began exercising. You want to guess what the stat is after two years? Want to guess? 90% were back to doing exactly what they were doing before. 90%. Now, that's not a coincidence. That's exactly spiritually what we do with God all the time. Yeah, I know what you want me to do. I know you've called me to change. Here's the deal. I know you saved my life. And if we're not careful, we start sliding right back into complacency. But boy, that would be a downer to end this with that. Chapter 3, let's just pick it up and we'll close her down. Put on your dancing shoes. Put on your dancing shoes. Look at verse 14, chapter 3. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Then go over to verse 17. The Lord your God, matter of fact, let's read 17 together. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Zephaniah is saying, listen, I know how hard it is, but I'm telling you, if you do it God's way, you better put your dancing shoes on because life will never be the same. Now, I always, in my mind, I'm a very visual person. In my mind, I was like, I wonder what that was like. I wonder what that was like as an assembly when they realized that they were beginning to get back to the sacred pages of God's word. I wonder what it was like as they realized they repented and came clean with God. I wonder what that celebration was like. And maybe it was like this. If you guys could play that for me, maybe it went down something like this.
guests want to watch the rest of the movie, I know. I think sometimes that's what's hard. We don't, I don't think we capture how amazing it is to just come to God. I don't think we understand how amazing it is to say, God, you know what? I'm going to do it your way. Matter of fact, I do something weird every year on my birthday. You guys probably do the same thing. Uh, how many of you listen to the radio and you see what celebrities were born on your birthday? Am I the only one that's done that? Shout out a celebrity born on your birthday. Gene, who's born on your birthday? You know? I don't have any idea. <laughs> okay. Other than you, Gene's a celebrity. Who, who's got a celebrity you know born on your birthday? Anybody? Yeah. Peyton Manning. Pey- Ooh, that's a tough one. Peyton Manning. Anybody else got a celebrity? President Bush. President Bush. Nice. Dave? Sally who? Sally Fields. <laughs> Ooh, Sally. <laughs> Here's who's born on my birthday. Thank you very much. Everybody okay? Okay. They're foot loosened. Okay. Um, John F. Kennedy. That's pretty good. But here's the one I loved, Bob Hope. And I love the name, Bob Hope. You know, if somebody were to say, of all the things you do as a Christian, what's your number one responsibility? You know what I think it is? We are in the hope business. We are called to bring hope. Because every Sunday, I guarantee this, every Sunday, you're probably sitting near someone, and that's what they came for. They need hope. Every work, every week, you work with individuals, and that's what they need. They just need hope. You have family members right now that you know this afternoon, you need to pick up the phone because they need hope. And every time I read through the prophets, I realize at the end of the day, that's what they're crying out for. I know this is hard. I know life is hard. I know that following God sometimes seems so difficult, but here's the deal. There is hope. His love. His mercy is mighty to save. There's hope. For all of you here today, whatever it is you're struggling with, I want you to know there is hope in Jesus Christ. No matter how dark it is right now, there's hope. And as we sing this morning, I want you to think about that hope. I want you to think wherever you're at, what Christ can do for you. And I also want you, as we do every Sunday, if there's anyone that just needs us to pray with them, just somebody who's searching out for Christ, we're here for you. We're here for you. Let's stand. Let's sing.